Blog Talk Radio. Uh oh, guess what day it is? Julie. Huh? Julie. Huh? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. Huh? What day is it, Mike? Huh? Listen, guess what today is? Listen, guess what today is? It's hump day. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Donaldson Files here on the Bash News Radio Network, where I am waiting uh, for John Hinderacker to be joining us shortly. So we're so we're going to say we're kind of waiting for John Hinderacker to join us very quickly. So we're uh, I know he's on his way. So so hello. Hello, Tom. Yes, John. How you doing? Uh, sorry doing about. Well. Yeah, we're in fact we're on the air right now, and uh, welcome to the show. Thanks. And uh, what I want to do here tonight, first of all, number one, I want to introduce, uh, you know, John Hinderacker is the one of the great writers of the great blog, Powerline Blog. He is also the president of the Center for American Experiment and and has been an attorney with four decades of courtroom experience. And so and I brought him on because he's a you know he's a very knowledgeable individual in the constitution, which I have to be honest with you, John. Uh I've been you know you know following some of the let's say the people who supposedly claim to be attorneys, you know, discussing these court cases, I'm thinking, you know, do they do they still teach the constitution in law school? <laughs> well, what I don't know for sure, Tom, is what they teach about the Constitution in law school. <laughs> Sometimes you wonder, don't you? Well, absolutely. Now, by the way, I am the chairman of America PAC. I am also a senior fellow and in Project Director for America's Majority Foundation, and I am now also going to become a senior fellow for the Frontier of Freedom. And and tonight's show, we're going to do something a little bit. You know, we've been doing this uh, for quite you know, a little bit here. When we have you know, individuals like John come on the air, we do make sure that they get the opportunity to talk about their think tanks. And, you know, and uh, John, I want to, uh, first of all, tell everybody briefly about your think tank and how people can donate money to it. Well, sure. We're, we are Center of the American Experiment. We're a state-based think tank located in Minnesota. And we do research and writing uh, and activism uh, on, on all of the main issues that our state and local government, whether it's taxes, spending, budget, uh, education, transportation, energy and natural resources, health care. We, you know, we cover that gamut of issues. And we also have some influence at the national level. And increasingly in the last couple of years, we've worked in a number of states. So, for example, People in seven states uh, have reached out to us and asked for our help to analyze green energy proposals, wind and solar proposals in their states. We have the only statistical model in the country that accurately calculates the, the true full cost of 
of uh, wind and solar energy. So we're active on a number of fronts. Uh, we're very public facing. We put ads on the radio. We put up billboards. You know, we've got uh, th- tens of thousands of, of Minnesotans on our email list. We drive hundreds and hundreds of thousands of emails to legislators, public comments uh, to administrative agencies, uh, and so forth. So that's a, that's a thumbnail sketch of what we do. All right. Well, let me. Add- yeah, I, I say because I again, uh, you know, like I say because I want people like I say it's a great think tank. And, and by the way, I am a donor. I have donated money on a you know uh, to the Center for American Experiment for the last couple of years, simply because of the work they do. And I've had many of your individuals, you know, on our show along with yourself. And so, and again, like I say to me, it's one of the premier think tanks, you know, that I. See, and, and I like the fact that you guys tend to do research in practical. I mean, they're practical research where a politician, an individual can look at it and say, okay, I understand it, I read it, now I can do something. We try to be as practical as possible, Tom. We, we work behind yeah. the scenes with politicians often. We publish a quarterly magazine with a circulation of 115,000. We do quarterly polling in connection with our magazine. So, we're very active, very influential. And if our listeners want to help support us, just go to our website, AmericanExperiment.org, not .com, but AmericanExperiment.org, and there's a donate button right there. All right. Now, like I said, there have been six cases, uh, in which I would say the conservatives want at least five out of six. The immigration, which I'm going to start off with, is the one case uh, we appear not to have won. Essentially, they basically are allowing – uh, Joe Biden to overrule the Trump, you know, stay in Mexico. And so maybe the first question is, you know, so I, let's just start with the failure first from a conservative perspective. And what was the rationale that Kavanaugh and Roberts did in, you know, joining the other, the, the three more liberal? Well, that's the decision of the major ones in this last session that I haven't written about, Tom. So I probably wouldn't start with that one to lead off. But but as I understand it, Tom, and I've looked at it only rather superficially, what's going on here is that uh, if one president uh, enters an executive order, uh, the next president can, can, can contradict it, can countermand it. And one of the things that's infuriating in the Trump administration, if you remember early in the Trump administration, there were yeah. some executive orders of President Obama that Trump tried to reverse, and judges would say, oh, no, no, you can't do that, which, of course, you know, it makes no sense. If, if one president can issue an executive order, the next president can, can negate it or issue something to the contrary. So I, you know, I, I, I didn't, if I understand correctly the rationale for that decision, yeah. I didn't, um, I didn't see it as as, as, a, as a bad decision. So basically, yeah, I mean, so basically, in effect, they're doing what they should have done in the early years of Trump, simply saying, you know, just because a Democratic president makes an executive order doesn't make it, you know, long lasting. It lasts as long as the the Republican president gets the pen and pencil, and vice versa. A lot, you know, the Trump executive order is going to last only as long as. Uh, Joe Biden, or I should say, Joe, you know, Ron Klein and Jill Biden, gets out the uh, pen and paper and just countermand it. Yeah, I mean, I, that's that's my understanding of the fundamental logic of that decision, and I, I find it easy yeah. to uh, easy to agree with. So, in effect, what it comes down to is up to Republicans in the next session if they win the House and Senate to basically 
you know, challenge that legally, you know, legislatively speaking, and and certainly with the next president, ought to just simply instead of executive order pass a bill saying you can't, you know, which reminds me, why didn't they do that originally? Because 17 and 18, 17 and 18, we still had control of both houses. Yeah, I can't answer that question. You know, I, I don't know. There's a lot that didn't happen in 17 and 18. Yeah. So, all right, let's go on to the first one and one. I, I'm going to say this. I, I thought this was the best court session in my lifetime. And, and your thoughts? Well, I agree with that. Uh, I think that after decades, literally decades of working away at developing conservative, you know, well-trained, well-educated, top-notch conservative uh, judges in the federal judiciary and getting them nominated uh, to the Supreme Court, you know, we went through a period there when, when Republican presidents kept nominating wishy-washy justices or justices that turned out to be wishy-washy, uh, you know, whether it was uh, Souter, O'Connor, uh, you know, uh, Blackman. I mean, there's a whole series of them. And part of what was going on there was that, 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 that we really hadn't developed a good, solid uh, ideology, philosophy of conservative jurisprudence. And I think a lot of this is, um, uh, is, is attributable to the Federalist Society. I think that the Federalist Society, um, uh, over a period of literally decades, um, really helped to develop a conservative, uh, originalist approach to uh, constitutional interpretation as well as statutory interpretation. And, and we're seeing now that the judges that have, that have been brought up in that tradition and have been nurtured as real conservative thinkers over a period of time, now they're on the Supreme Court. You know, and now what we're seeing is these Republican appointees are solid conservative justices. Well, I love him or hate him. The one thing you say about Donald Trump, this to me is his one legacy that no one can take away. Uh, no doubt about it. And it's one of the reasons, uh, Tom, why the Democrats are, the liberals are going to keep hating Trump for many years to come. Trump is living rent-free in the liberals' heads. That's true. Yeah. But I think he's going to keep living rent-free in their heads for a long time because um, – this Supreme Court is not that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think there's a lesson here to be as well, because quite frankly, you know, the one guy who, you know, I can remember the one guy who I didn't think would do this, but he did. And pretty much when you look through even an appeal course, you know, I can't think of too many instances where he basically picked a wishy-washy a, a, a justice for any of these appeal courts as well. And. And I think the one thing he did right, I mean, one thing that he did absolutely right is he listened to the Federalist Society and said, okay, give me a list of people. You know, I don't know this, but you guys do. No, he, that's, no, I think there's no doubt about it, Tom. I think that's exactly what he did. And um, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of ironic because some people think if he hadn't done that, if he hadn't published that, that list um, of justices that he would, from which he would pick, you know, if he won the election, a lot of people think he would not have won the election. A lot of people think that it was that focus on the Supreme Court, that that list of potential yeah. justices, that was just catnip to conservatives. You know, 
uh, you know, yeah. that, that may be what, what in the election and, and following through on that pledge may turn out to be one of his biggest yeah. legacies. Yeah, and I think I mean, the other, I think I like go back to the Kavanaugh case. I, you know, I can't think of any other president that would have stood by Kavanaugh under those circumstances. I mean, well, Trump Trump knows what it feels like to be unjustly and falsely attacked, right? Yeah. And uh, I, you may be right about that. You may be right that other Republican presidents would have said, "I don't want to take any more heat on this one." I got a lot more nominees. I'll, I'll ask Kavanaugh to step down and nominate somebody else. That may be true, but Trump, again, you know, God bless him, um, you know, didn't didn't knuckle under, and neither did Kavanaugh. Which reminds me, do you think that because Kavanaugh was not on that original list, the Federalist Society? Him, I'm not. If I don't, re, if I remember correctly, I and, believe that's right. Yeah, he Trump added a, several names. I don't remember how many now. Three, four, five, six additional names. Yeah. At a later date, and Kavanaugh, I believe, was one of them. Yeah, yeah. And I, the thing I always remember, because you know, people were always worried about is Kavanaugh going to be another Kennedy, because that's who he uh, clerked for. And I, yeah. uh, there's a part of me I wonders, having gone through that attack himself, and then having, and then having, let's say, protests outside of your house in attempted assassination attempts, if there's a part of Kavanaugh that says, you know what, hell with you people. <laughs> Well, I hope so, Tom. I mean, I, if, if having a would-be assassin outside his family's house doesn't kind of harden him against these, these folks, I don't know what would. Yeah, but uh, I, I, like I said, this was to me, you know, like I say, a court session that I never dreamed would happen in my lifetime. It's just one of those things that... You, you know, it's interesting, Tom. I don't disagree with you. I mean, I'm as happy about it as everybody else. But But one thing that struck me about the three cases in particular that I... I wrote about extensively on Powerline, is if you actually go back and look at them, none of them should have been a surprise. None of them should have been a surprise. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, starting with Dobbs. I don't know which case you want to talk about next, Tom, but, yeah. but really these are decisions that, number one, I think were clearly correct. And number two, yeah. you should have been able to see these decisions coming a mile away. Yeah. Well, again, this time, Donaldson, Donaldson Piles uh, with John Hinderacker, the president of the Center for American Experiment. We'll be right back. You can listen to the show every day on the Bastion News Radio Network, bastionnews.airtime.pro. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. And Buffalo Wild Wings is the one place where I go if I want to find a sporting event that nobody else is going to cover. And if, uh, for example, I love the Kansas City Royals, and they're, they're the one place in town where I can actually go to the to the bartender and say, Mr. Bartender, put on the Royals, and they will find this, the network and the station tomorrow night. It's Chicken Wings Night. Also, ladies and gentlemen, I have my new book, America at the Abyss, Will America Survive? is now available on barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, or libertyhillpublishingpress.com, which is associated with Salem Media. And this segment also is going to be sponsored 
uh, I should, I'm not yet to use the word sponsor because I want to talk. When people would say that the Center for American Experiment is one of the great think tanks, I will be honest and let you know that two of their researchers actually helped a research project that I did for an America's Majority Foundation, and I appreciate John lending me those two individuals for a period of time. But, John, if you want to, again, tell everybody just one more time how they can um, donate money to the uh, Center for American Experiment. Sure. Just go to our website, which is AmericanExperiment.org, and you'll see a Donate button there. It's bright red, and we'd appreciate any contributions you make. Okay. Now, I'm going to start up with the EPA, because I think this, along with DOTS, are the two – I mean, they were all significant, but this was, was a significant decision. Uh, well, it was really significant. You know, Tom, throughout your adult lifetime and mine, we have watched the inexorable advance of the administrative state as Congress has really abdicated its lawmaking responsibilities in large part to this, you know, this, this whole panoply of federal agencies and and what's interesting to me about West Virginia versus EPA, which is the you know the case we're talking about here, is that if you actually look at the statute uh, that that was at issue, um, the, the EPA was trying to interpret that statute. It's 42 U.S. Code section 7411D. It's one little obscure paragraph in this in this rather vast statute, and and. And, and the government wanted to interpret that paragraph to give the EPA authority to completely remake America's electrical power system, closing down coal-fired plants and mandating the use of wind and solar uh, electricity and, and so on. And, and, and there's nothing about that in the section. You know, that section doesn't say anything about, about uh, you know, closing down power plants and remaking the whole electrical uh, grid uh, system. And, and, and liberals are irate, uh, you know, and several justices went the other way in this case. And, and Elena Kagan wrote a dissent in which she was going on and on about global warming and the horrible dangers of global warming. And, you know, the idea that you have to look at what the Constitution actually says or what a federal law, as in this case, actually says and follow what it says, liberals don't believe that anymore. They really don't. Yeah. And this case is a great example of it. The whole theory behind this case is, oh, my God, global warming, you know, hysterical, hysterical response. And, and uh, Congress wouldn't pass this, this system. You know, the Democrats tried to get a cap-and-trade system that would have driven coal plants out of existence and so forth, they couldn't get it through Congress. And so this is plan B, is to pretend that Congress has delegated the authority to do all this stuff to the EPA, even though it's not in the statute. It's just not there. And yeah. so this is a complete abdication of the rule of law. You know, the most fundamental thing about the rule of yeah. law is you've got to read the law and see what it says and follow what it says. And yet the, the liberals are up in arms talking about global warming, uh, even though there's really no serious argument that the statute delegates this particular power to the EPA. Well, here's the thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing that really struck because when I read the dissent, nowhere do I really catch the drift of, hey, this is what the Constitution says. It's like we have an issue. We have to deal with it. And it's up to these experts to deal with it. 
which is, you know, government by expertise, supposedly, quote-unquote. No, that's, that's exactly right, Tom. That's exactly right. Defer to the experts, right, whether there's no. a statute in place or not. And and I don't, I don't know if you caught the – I don't know if you ever catch the Manitarian, Manhattan Contrarian, the Manhattan Contrarian. Uh, you know, I guess that's Francis Merton's uh, blog. Francis Merton, yeah. Yeah, he did a great analysis of this. And he made the same point, you know, you and I are making right now. He said, go through what the dissent is. And he said, the opening thing, dissent, the world's going to end if we don't let the EPA <laughs> <Right>. do this. <laughs> right, right. Never, never mind whether there's any truth to the claim that the statute delegates that power to the EPA. Yeah. I would make one more comment about this case, Tom. And that is that um, um, Chief Justice Roberts, who, who wrote the majority opinion in, in this case, wove together several cases that had found an absence of administrative authority in different contexts, yeah. found that Congress had not delegated authority to some administrative agency to do a certain, you know, whatever it is, here, you know, regulate, regulate the power system. And, and he, he enunciated a... Um, I got to find here the, the major questions doctrine, and and basically what he's saying is that when you've got a really important, uh, extraordinary uh, case where where really major authority is supposedly being delegated to um, to an administrative agency, you've got to have clear congressional authorization. Clear congressional yeah. authorization. Well, that seems like just common sense to me. But I think what, it, what I hope it signals is a future willingness on the part of the Supreme Court to stop giving a blank check to every single thing any administrative agency wants to do and to look at it more critically and ask, is this really something for which the agency has statutory authority? Yeah. Well, they, uh, like, I mean, this to me, is, it's not that because you know, we've been basically one – I, by government, uh, by administrative state, it's absolutely. And you know, the one thing I think of, I don't know, you know, one of my favorite, you know, constitutional scholars, even though he's actually a Democrat, is John Turley. Yeah, he's been very good in recent years. Yeah, yeah. And I can remember in 2013, he wrote a piece in the Washington Post about the administrative state, and he basically said, "Look, you're ten times more likely to be in a court run by the." bureaucrats than a court of law and yeah. in those courts you're guilty you know prove until you prove innocent not the other way around <laughs> yeah yeah you know one of the things i've said uh, over the years here tom is that the government we live under is not the one that is described in the constitution yeah and and what i mean by that is that it's the it's the fourth branch of government the administrative state that's now responsible for about 95 percent of the laws and regulations that we live under, you know, yeah. and, and this, this is not what's described in the constitution. Yeah. Well, I mean, this, you know, this is the same. I mean, it's, and, and, and the other thing comes into play and I think we need to kind of go into this. Namely, we got two totally different views of how we should be judging the constitution, or I'm just going to say it or not, or ignoring the Constitution, but you got two terribly, you know, almost reconcilable. And, and and this was one of those cases where you can just simply say, you know, how could you, you know, you read a dissent, 
And it's all about, well, the world's going to end, oh, so we got to defer to the experts. Nowhere does it say this is what the Constitution says about the separation of powers. Or this is what the statute says about the powers yep. granted to the EPA. Yeah, pa- yeah. You know, you're absolutely right, Tom. It's a, it's a fundamentally different uh, vision. And, um, and generally speaking, when a liberal says that he thinks something is unconstitutional, what he means by that is he thinks it's a, it's a really bad thing, but something where the liberal position can't get through Congress. Yeah. Well, let me, and, and, you know, and, I, and I think this, to me, is a case where we need, I mean, and I'm hoping that, you know, those on our side begin rippling away at this administrative state. You know, I'm not a fan of Steve Bannon, but he did one, he made one quote that I actually agreed with, and that is, you know, it's time to deconstruct the administrative state. It's, well, you know, Philip, Philip Hamburger, who's a, a, a terrific yeah. uh, law professor, wrote, wrote a book a few years ago, Is the Administrative yeah. State Unconstitutional? And he makes a powerful case that this whole fourth branch of government, of course, mentioned nowhere in the Constitution, uh, is, is not constitutional. And, and co- you know, Congress has got to take back, because Congress is accountable to the people, right? The, the yeah. alphabet soup of agencies are not accountable to the people. And if we're going to have a true democracy, Congress has got to be making the laws, not these agencies. Yeah, you mean saving democracy, huh? <laughs> That's a phrase. Well, of course, when the, when, of course, well, the Democrats have, or the liberals have got their own definitions for all these terms, right? Our yeah. democracy, you know, they, they like to talk about a threat to our democracy. By that, they, when they say our democracy, they mean Democrats winning elections. Yeah. Before we go into depth, the other aspect I find – this is the other aspect to me I find interesting because I'm reading the decision by the left, and I'm going through this. And the first thing that comes to my mind is how can you – I mean we've just gone through two years of a pandemic in which the so-called experts were about 180 degrees wrong on almost every major issue. Uh you know, Tom, I like to say I, I, I was a trial lawyer for 41 years. I cross-examined yeah. hundreds of expert witnesses, probably, probably in the thousands of, of experts, and I worked with yeah. experts on my own side. I like to say that if everyone had cross-examined as many experts as I have, we wouldn't be hearing this nonsense about how we all have to defer to the experts. <laughs> okay, yeah. trust yeah. me. You know, some experts yeah. are great, other experts not so great. Experts are not infallible, and they have their own biases. They have their own preconceptions, just like the rest of us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's absolutely. I have a, it's kind of funny because one of the uh, individuals who appears on my show ever so often, Dr. Larry Petera, you know, one of the, you know, he's one of these guys who has done so many different things in his life. But one thing he actually, he had a, court, he had a small company, a consulting firm, which he, you know, what number one thing he, he did, he said, my job was to teach bureaucrats how to get a vaccine to the market during the Bush years and portions of the Obama year. Mm-hmm. And trying to explain to them how to do this. And mm-hmm. he had a chance to meet with these experts, including Tony Fauci. And let's just say he was less than over, un, he was very underwhelmed by Fauci as a scientist, but not so, as a bureaucrat. <laughs> well, you know, I think Fauci went to where I believe Fauci. I once wrote on Powerline that Fauci went to work for the federal government during the Richard Nixon administration, yeah. and somebody wrote in and said, "No, no, no, that's wrong. He actually went to work during the what the Lyndon Johnson administration. He's a bureaucrat. You know, I, yeah. I, I see as many patients as he does. You know, he's, he's been a bureaucrat all his life, 
and he's good at the political game, but you know uh, he has no particular expertise as a as a scientist. Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, you know, he's he's a demonstration of mediocrity scientist, but he also is a lesson because it goes back to this court case of the EPA. Is I'm not going to base my policies on a group of scientists or base it on a model that has been wrong more times than has been right when it comes to environmental issues, including climate change. But well, that's, that's, the that's exactly right. A model is a theory, right? A model yeah. is a hypothesis. And if, and if experience doesn't confirm the model, if observation doesn't confirm the model, it means the model's wrong. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I, you know, and, and I was talking about something. It's like you say, it's like any model is, if you put crap data in a model, you get a crap model and you get crap results. <laughs> That's the long and short of it is. And we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back to Dallas, which I think was probably you know, another significant decision. This is Tom Donaldson, Donaldson Files here in the Bastion News Radio Network. You can listen to this show every day in the Bastion News Airtime dot pro. Napa know how. Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolored paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. And ladies and gentlemen, also, don't forget, you can buy my book, America at the Abyss, Will America Survive? Uh, and the chapters we are talking about the courts and also uh, the experts, uh, the rule of experts in the leadership class and the scientific class are covered in my book. So you can, you know, like I say, learn the trends that are happening now politically as we go into the 2022 election and beyond. And the Center for American Experiment is a great think tank out of Minneapolis. Uh, John Hinderack is the president. And uh, real quick, John, uh, what are some of the things that you guys are now doing research in or research you've just recently released? Well, my goodness, we've got so much going on. I mean, for example, our education policy fellow is, is finalizing a paper on the impact of the COVID school shutdowns on academic performance of kids. Um, our, our economists are, are writing a paper on the impact of COVID shutdowns, looking at the 50 states and focusing, of course, on Minnesota, but, but doing an analysis based on the data from the 50 states, uh, the impact on the economy of the COVID shutdowns, uh, a very severe shutdown that we had here in, here in Minnesota. Uh, our energy staff, you know, is working uh, around the clock on uh, on energy issues, uh, and so it's you know it's a it, it's a broad range of, uh, of issues that we deal with. Yeah. All right. Now let's go back to the Dobbs. Here's the thing. I mean, yeah, Dobbs is one of those decisions. I know we talked about briefly, you know, before you know, you know, this afternoon. I found it fascinating because I don't know if this was Alito putting out an olive branch or Alito saying, you know. You know, this, you know, but he basically made it clear in his decision. Kavanaugh made it clear in his concurrence, and certainly both, you know, you know Neil Gosh and uh, Barrett signed on on it, and that was basically okay, guys. You know, this does not apply to other cases, i.e., 
gay marriage, i.e. birth control bond, you know, i.e. interracial marriage. You can't use the same logic. And I don't know if this was his way of saying, you know, you know, when, you know don't, you know, we're not going to get involved in that. Or it was that off, you know, that all of Francis says, eh. Yeah, you know, we're well, here's 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 how I see that, Tom. Here's how I see that. You know, if some people think Dobbs is kind of a sweeping decision, but it's actually a narrow decision, and I think appropriately so. I'm not being critical, but it's a narrow decision. It overrules Roe versus Wade, but within the framework of of substantive due process that uh, that was applied back in 1973 and then reaffirmed in the yeah. uh, in the Casey decision. And and the dissenter here, of course, is Clarence Thomas. And Thomas is the leading intellectual, the leading thinker, I would say, on the Supreme Court. And uh, and Thomas has been saying for years that the whole doctrine of substantive due process is, frankly, it's a contradiction in terms, right? You got substance, you got process, right? So what is substantive due process? I mean, it is a court-manufactured doctrine. And if you go back 100 years, conservatives on the court were using substantive due process to say that things like wage and hour laws in the states were unconstitutional because they infringed the sacred right of the employees to contract on any terms they want, right? right. And so substantive due process has a very checkered career, and it's come under criticism for 100 years or more. Uh, and Thomas has been forthright for years in saying he thinks that whole doctrine is misbegotten. And and what he's saying in his concurrence in the Dobbs case is he thinks that, that other decisions of the court that were based on, on substantive due process should be revisited. He's not necessarily saying they should be overruled because there may be another good reason why they yeah. why yeah. the result is correct, right? There could be a good reason for yeah. that result. But substantive due process is not a good reason. And and some of the cases that have been decided on substantive due process grounds, uh, wholly or in part, are are some of these you know the very controversial um, uh, cultural issues, social issues, where the court has found rights that that are not mentioned in the Constitution. For example, the right to gay marriage. And uh, and so a lot of Democrats look at uh, Thomas's concurrence and they say, oh, oh, gay marriage and these other things they may all be on the chopping block. I don't think they're wrong, frankly. <laughs> I don't yeah. think they're wrong to be concerned about that. I think that Dobbs is kind of an emperor's new clothes moment. Everybody yeah. really understands, Tom, that there isn't anything in the Constitution about abortion, right? right? You know, we went for 200 years and nobody ever saw anything about abortion in the Constitution. And there's nothing in the Constitution about gay marriage, right? It's just not there. They made it up. And, and, and I think everybody at the end of the day actually understands that that's what's going on with some of these decisions. And I see Dobbs as, as, as really striking a blow on behalf of the rule of law and saying, look, we're a court. You know, we're not a super legislature. It's not in our power to just make stuff up because we politically think it's right. It's our job to look at the language, yeah. to look at the text, to look at what the Constitution says and apply it in a neutral, good faith way to the case before us, not to use our political power to, to, to make stuff up. 
And so, and so even though for, for now, Justice Alito is very careful to say that these other decisions are not affected by Dobbs, and that's, that's true. The narrow holding of Dobbs does not impact those other cases. Yeah. However, <laughs> I think that the day is going to come when the whole doctrine of substantive due process is going to be uh, on the table. And I think it's going to be very, very interesting to see um, how many justices there are at that point willing to side with Clarence Thomas and say this is just a misbegotten doctrine that we're no longer going to follow. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting. I mean, that to me is you know, it's, because I was thinking that, and you know, and I had this conversation again with George Landreth, who's the president of Frontier Freedom, and like you, a, he was a practicing attorney, and he also taught constitutional law. George Mason. And we got, and he said, "Look, I mean, here's the bottom line." He said, "You're not going to find, as you stated, a constitutional right to, you know, in the Constitution, gay marriage, or birth control pills." But he said, "There's the practical side, namely, in the case of birth control pills, you know, that, you, know you can, you know, do whatever you want to do. Nobody." I, he says, "I can't think of one state where you're going to have anybody outlawed." Well, this is the thing. This is really important, Tom. I'm glad you yeah. brought that. This is Griswold versus Connecticut. Okay. Yeah. This is the case that invented out of whole cloth a right to privacy, which Justice Blackman, I think it was, found hiding in the emanations and penumbras of various provisions. But but there, there you know there's no such language in the Constitution, and and there was a you know ca- apparently Connecticut at one time was a Catholic state if you go far enough back, yeah. and there was a law in the books in Connecticut that prohibited the sale of contraceptives. Now that law was not enforced. People are buying contraceptives all over the place. But that case started out as a project in a classroom at Yale. It was a bunch of Yale students who set up this lawsuit for, for exactly this purpose, to, to try to raise a constitutional issue. And so they, they set up this attempt to buy contraceptives. Oh, no, can't sell you contraceptives. It's against the law. And that, that's where the case originated. So this thing makes its way all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court just invents the so-called right of privacy and, and says that under the Constitution, you can't ban the sale of yeah. contraceptives. And this is a really pivotal moment because the truth is nobody I – mean, the, the idea here is that if a statute is really, really stupid, it must be unconstitutional. I mean that's really, yeah. what, that's really what they're saying. If it's really, really stupid, uh, then it violates yeah. due process. It can't, it, it can't be constitutional. Well, you know, it's just not right. You know, I mean, nobody wants to ban the sale of contraceptives. Nobody's going to vote for it. Nobody's going to do it. But there's there's all kinds of stupid things that are not prohibited by the Constitution. The Constitution says what it says, and it doesn't say what it doesn't say. Well, yeah, the other argument, too, is like an interracial marriage. And I was thinking to myself, okay, and again, I was talking to George Landreth, and we both got – and he made the point to me. He said, "Look, first of all, number one, somehow or another, you got two judges right now, two Supreme Court justices, black, who have white spouses, <laughs> and you have a Supreme Court justice who's got black children that she adopted." And, and George said, "Well, you know, you know, just those two things alone, that alone would probably." You know, well, should the, 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 and of course, nobody tried to ban interracial marriage. Nobody yeah. would dream of doing that. That case is Loving versus Virginia. Yeah. And I think actually that there is a solid basis for a constitutional 
right to interracial marriage um, based on equal protection. I, I think that if you were to revisit, and I, I haven't read Loving versus Virginia in decades, yeah. then they may very well have had an equal protection argument there. But if I were on the Supreme Court, I would say that the Equal Protection Clause um, uh, guarantees the right uh, to, to marry a person of, of a different race. Well, so that, that is, that's really a very, very different yeah. case. But, it, but it's similar in the sense that there isn't anybody out there. There's no one who wants to ban interracial yeah. marriage. And so they, they raise this whole you know, parade of horribles as if everything that isn't unconstitutional is going to happen. Yeah. Well, my thought, too, because the first thing you know, you know, was the 15th Amendment, which basically says exactly what you just stated. You could almost say, here's the 15th Amendment, so we'll use that. I mean, Chase Schofield, well, thank you very much. Let's move on. Yeah, I but, think I, I think the danger. I, I think that case is not going to get overturned, although the grounds might be restated. Um, yeah. But but again, you know, the idea that everything that that's bad must be unconstitutional, I guess, is is the most fundamental point I would make. That that just isn't right. There's all kinds of things that are bad, stupid, irrational. You name it, yeah. but just have got nothing to do with the Constitution. I think Congress does stupid things all the time. Yeah. But, you know, that doesn't mean that if I get a, if five conservatives on the Supreme Court who think it's stupid that, therefore, we can rule it unconstitutional. Well, actually, here's what it comes down to is that legislators have a right to be stupid, and people right. have a right to vote for stupid people to be right. legislators. That's right. That's and, right. Uh, and we're a democracy, yeah. and if it's really stupid, then, then we hope the voters are going to vote in some different people. Yeah. But, you know, that's, you know, we're a democracy, and the Supreme Court is not intended to be some kind of super legislature that, that overrules uh, Congress and the state legislatures based on political judgments and policy judgments. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go back to one quick point is you've just made is how narrow Dobbs really is. This is not some extreme – this is a fairly narrow case. Here's what we're talking about. We're talking about abortion. This is all we're going to deal with. We believe there's nothing in the Constitution. It goes back to the states. Thank you very much. But they don't go beyond that. I thought, I mean, this was a very good, well-designed, but narrow case. And I think that's an important aspect because you, you – and I want you to kind of follow up with that point because you know, it's almost as if you have one of the more narrow cases you could find to adopt. And yet on the other side – it's looked at a hor- – I mean the political left has basically looked at this as inventing new law, but they were very careful not to do it. They were saying we're going to keep it narrow to this point. Yeah, well, um, you know, like I said before, Tom, I mean I, I, I think that this case does have implications, and we'll see how far they go. I mean it may be that the court yeah. you know, doesn't address substantive due process in a broader way, doesn't take up some of these other issues. But I, I think that when you put together all the things that we're seeing in these various cases, what we're seeing most fundamentally is a return to the rule of law. I think we're seeing a Supreme Court majority that, that understands that the court is not a super legislature, that it doesn't exist to impose its own political opinions on the rest of us, and that whatever case it's deciding, it has to decide on the basis of the text of a federal statute or, or of the Constitution. And, and that is kind of revolutionary. I mean, it, 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 it should be, you know, it should be a change. The court, that's the way the Supreme Court always used to be. 
but it's a significant change. It is a return to the rule of law that the liberals have effectively chipped away at over the last 40 or 50 years. Yeah. Hey, we're going to follow up on the New York gun rights because I think this was another significant uh, issue, a court decision. This is Tom Donaldson, Donaldson Files here on the Bastard News Radio Network. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, you can buy my book, America at the Abyss, Will America Survive, at barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, and libertyalepublishingpress.com. So great. You know, I will say so myself because I'm the author, but it does talk about the trends we're now seeing going into the, 22, the 2022 election, 2024, the trends we're seeing politically. Uh, it follows up on my book on the rise of national populism and democratic socialism, which I examine even, you know, call it the sequel, examine even further. Um, um, and so it's a, so if you want to basically learn about what's happening within the conservative movement, this would be a good book. And if you want to uh, detail the fact that today we do have a socialist party, <laughs> the Democratic Socialist Party of America, only they're called Democrats. And, how, and the trends that came into that as well. Now we're going to go back to uh, Dr. John Hinderak, who's the president of the Center of American Experiments. And real quick, John, why don't you tell people briefly how they can donate to your, uh, uh, your think tank. Go to AmericanExperiments.org and hit the bright red donate button. All right. All right, let's look at the, the New York gun rights bill. Uh, I thought this was, again, uh, another brilliant decision, and I'm and, and I'm gonna go back because I, I love you know Francis Minton's analysis of this because he says what do the political left begin with gun statistics how many people are dying in the streets <laughs> right yeah right and and, and basically again the const- you know what does the Constitution say yeah. So, Tom, this is another decision. I I mentioned this earlier, but to me, this decision should have been a foregone conclusion. The Supreme Court has already held in the Heller case and the McDonald case that the right to keep and bear arms is a fundamental constitutional right that is enjoyed by Americans. Now, obviously, if you're a convicted felon or something, you can forfeit you can forfeit those rights and and those rights are subject to various kinds of regulations i mean god knows we've got hundreds if not thousands of statutes and regulations relating to uh, buying and owning uh, firearms and using firearms however the, the right to keep and bear arms is a fundamental constitutional right that's available to all americans and so and so in this case it's new york state rifle and pistol pistol association versus bruin there was a New York state law that basically just thumbed its nose at those Supreme Court decisions, and it says that you can't get a permit to carry a firearm unless you can show, quote, proper cause. And proper cause required the applicant to, quote, 
demonstrate a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community. So the average guy can't get a permit. To get a permit, you've got to show a special need that is different from that of the average citizen. Well, you know, that doesn't, that's obviously antithetical to Heller and McDonald, which they know the right to keep and bear arms explicit in the Second Amendment is a fundamental constitutional right that's available to all. And so I thought it was just a foregone conclusion that uh, the New York Pistol and Rifle Association is going to win this case. And, and, and it, that's what happened, of course. Justice Thomas wrote the uh, majority uh, decision and, and basically, I think, said the obvious, that, that, that if you have a requirement that you have to demonstrate a special – that's like saying you have to demonstrate a special need to exercise a right to free speech. Most people can't talk, Right. In order yeah. to be able to, to, to speak, you have to demonstrate a special need to speak that's different from that of the general public. Well, no, it's a fundamental constitutional right. So I, I see this as, as an important case, but, but a case that is absolutely consonant with, um, uh, with those prior Supreme Court decisions. Now, here's the thing that concerns me, because you, you write – because you wrote you know, dealing with, let's say – and this is how you found it, you know, when the Second Circuit Court of Appeals voted to uphold the New York law, that's what you say. I find it hard to see how this ruling represented a good faith attempt to apply Heller and McDonald. And then on top of that, now you have a situation where now New York City is basically saying, oh, you want a gun, now you got to show us your social media. Well, they're saying a lot of things. You've got to take some ridiculous number of hours of training. and You've got to yeah. pass some kind of a character test. You've got to submit all your social media for the last three years. There's this whole series of hoops that, that you have to jump through if you want to actually get a permit in New York City. Then they've got this long list of places where you can't carry a firearm, and it's, and it's really long. And so they're going to be back in court on that, and the question is going to be whether, whether these requirements unduly burden the exercise of your right to uh, to keep and bear arms, but it, but you're you're absolutely right, right, Tom. And I did make that point in my post. I mean, I don't know how a majority uh, of a panel on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals can read the Heller and McDonald cases and look at this New York statute and say it's constitutional. I mean, I just you yeah. know I don't think that was a good faith decision on the part of those uh, Second Circuit uh, judges. And, and it goes to show, you know, the hostility toward this constitutional right uh, is so deep uh, that, that these liberals are going to keep fighting. it. They are not going to, in many instances, not all, but in many instances, they are not going to accept this decision. They're going to keep fighting it. Well, here's the, but here's the thing. You talk about lawlessness because what concerns me here is that you know, when we lose court decisions, you know, we just go back to ground zero and begin the process all over again. What we don't do is basically, you know, challenge as if the you know as if the ruling never happened. And I'm looking at, I mean, and there's a lawlessness that goes in. First of all, you have the Second Circuit Court basically, as you stated, no good faith. I mean, how can you not look at this and say exactly, you know, this runs counter to Heller and McDonald. And the second aspect is New York's, you know, outright attempt to basically throw the middle finger at the Supreme Court and say we're not going to obey this. 
Well, you know, the Democrats have a long history of not wanting to obey Supreme Court decisions. You can go, you can go back to Andrew Jackson. You can go back to um, yeah. uh, to uh, decisions in the in the 1950s and 60s involving integration in the South, you know, and standing in the schoolhouse door. And, you know, um, <laughs> this isn't the first time members yeah. of the Democratic Party have, uh, have thumbed their nose at the Supreme Court, and it probably won't be the last. I know, but I just but there's an aspect of me what concerns me and I think is concerned Americans in general and I and I want to is you know you know this vision of what we have what the Constitution is or isn't but more importantly a lawlessness that says you know we don't care what you say we're just going to do what we feel like doing and somewhere along the line you know this lawlessness is going to basically lead to more disastrous aspects for society as a whole. I mean, you can't just keep thumbing the nose at what is self-evident constitutional law. You know, and not uh, have an impact. Uh, you know, Tom, I, I saw a, a set of, uh, of Gallup poll results just today just yeah. came out on trust in institutions. And in the last couple of years, Americans' trust in institutions across the board, I mean all of them, has yeah. dropped. And including the Supreme Court, this is before the Dobbs decision, so it's not a reflection of that. But trust in all of these institutions has dropped. And, and I think that, you know, when, when people believe that institutions, and here we're talking about the Supreme Court, but I think you can say the same thing about, yeah. about, about a number of other institutions, are not being run uh, according to their ostensible purpose, being run in good faith for the benefit of the citizens as uh, as is intended under our laws and our constitution and our in our traditional culture uh, but rather they are manifestations of of somebody's power grab trying to rule over the rest of us illegitimately that's increasingly how how americans are, are seeing our institutions and it, obviously it's terribly dangerous and uh, my hope is that that if we get the supreme court back on the track that that we saw in this term where where they're not in the business of have we got five votes if we've got five votes let's make up a new law right that's the way it's been yeah Yeah. and and if they're back on the track of saying well well, let's see what the law actually says and apply it in a fair way um you know that's at least a step in the direction of restoring public confidence that these institutions are functioning in the way that they're intended to well it makes it fun because this again it goes back to the epa course it goes back to Dobbs even goes back to let's say what the New York law was, where essentially, you know, you have. I mean, the Constitution is not to me. It's not like a science. It's pretty much a very easily understandable document, and and yet we've had literally people saying we're not going to follow it. We're going to go around and we'll find ways to do it if we don't like it. And there's a point somewhere where leaders themselves. And maybe the you know, leaders themselves have to say, okay, this is the rule. Now let's go change it to the legislation. I mean, basically, you know, what the courts are saying on abortion. You know, this is an issue that ought to be decided by the people because there's too many nuances to deal with. Well, and it's an issue that, that historically, traditionally has been the province of state law. It's a part of this is one of the many aspects of the state police powers. And, you know, abortion was never a question of federal law. Every state passed its own laws. And, and um, you know, this is a whole big topic, Tom, but, you know, our country is so divided right now. 
Yeah. And and I, I think there's a, a serious possibility that we may see disunion at some point in the not all that distant future, that, that we may decide that we'd rather not live together in the same country and let's find a way, kind of like Brexit, you know, let's find a way to go our, our separate ways. And I think the alternative to that is federalism. Uh, you know, Texas doesn't have to yeah. be like California. Florida doesn't have yeah. to be like New York. South Dakota doesn't have to be like Vermont. You know, let the states go their separate ways in, in those areas that, that traditionally have been the province of, of state and local uh, law and yeah. custom. And, and if they're different, fine, they're different. But, but the idea that we've got to force everybody into a one-size-fits-all straitjacket is just creating more and more problems, more and more discontent all the time. Yeah, I just think because here's the thing. I'm going to go back to the pandemic as a good example. Is all you got to do is look at what, on the average, Republican states outperform Democratic states widely. And, you know, based on every data I've seen and every data I myself have collected for the foundation uh, versus, you know, versus during the pandemic, they you know you know they had less restrictions and the less restriction led to. You know, better employment situation, and you're seeing this in the fact that you know how many people, like 300,000 people, have left California last year. 300,000 less than New York. Well, they're fleeing California, New York, and they're they're pouring into Texas and Florida. It's not hard to understand uh, why. Yeah. And then you have states like South Dakota. You know, I mean, you you might say, well, I understand why I want to leave New York for uh, for Florida, but you know, the the, the states that have 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 given their, their people more freedom and better recognized the freedom of their populations. You know, they're the ones that are, that are prospering. And I think there's two things going on. One is economic and you're absolutely right. The, the States that did fewer, you know, less draconian restrictions limited their economies less didn't make any difference in terms of the disease, but it helped a great deal in terms of the, uh, the economy. But I'll tell you, Tom, there's, there's also the pure value of freedom. You know, if you lived in a state where there was constantly stores shut down, restaurants shut down, bars can't operate, everywhere you go, you got to wear a mask, neighbors, you know, it was here in Minnesota, under a, a FOIA request, somebody has gotten the, the, the tips that were being sent in to the, to the snitch line at the state about neighbors who were going out without masks on or, you know, whatever. And this is a sick environment. And so let's not yeah. forget the, the value of freedom that was recognized a lot more in some states than others. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, and again, let me say, absolutely. But it goes back to the point of federalism, namely, you know, let people decide in, you know, in the long run. If you do that, if you do that, you know, to me, what's going to end up happening, people are going to go where they're going to be happy. Well, but there's going to be an exodus from blue states to red states, and we're seeing that already. And we're seeing that already. But like, accelerate. Well, maybe there's a lesson for red, the blue states, hopefully, to learn. I think we're going to stop right there. I want to thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, uh, John Hinderek is the president of the Center for American Experiment. This is Tom Donaldson saying good night from the Donaldson Files here on the Bastard News Radio Network. And we're okay. Thank you very much.